1: In this episode, Alexander Lee discusses the notion of the ideal city throughout history. Alex is the author of Reaching for the Sky, the cover story in our November issue. Also in this issue, Jerry White discusses the housing crisis that afflicted London during the First World War. Ashley and Stephen Cooper put Richard III on trial. Peter Ling discusses the Kennedy assassination. And Marilyn Longmuir tells us what banknotes reveal about the history of Burma. The November issue is in newsstands now. It's also available in a newly redesigned format for iPad, Kindle Fire and Android tablets. New readers can get a free trial subscription by downloading the app from the relevant app store and following the instructions. Now, over to Alexander Lee, who spoke earlier this week to History Today editor Paul Lay.
0: The cover story for the November edition of History Today is by Alexander Lee. It's called Reaching for the Sky. Alex's starting point is the construction frenzy, which is currently gripping the cities of Europe. In London buildings such as the Shard, 20 Fenchurch Street, also known as the Walkie Talkie, and the new Google headquarters at King's Cross, they're transforming the face of Britain's capital, defying warnings of hubris dating back to the Tower of Babel. And while all this looks very futuristic and dramatic, it's actually just a new chapter in this ancient ideal of creating sustainable urban centres, the notion that cities should be shaped by deeply cherished ideas of how society should function reaches back thousands of years. And Alex is giving us six examples. The first, because he's the city of the sun, and Alex is here to talk about it.
2: It was built by the Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten. That's absolutely right. Um, before mench- moving on to Akhenaten, it's actually important to put it into context When we think about history as a whole, the very beginnings of documented history, rather than archaeology, lie in cities. Human history is a history of urban centres, and we trace the origins of civilisation back to these constructed collectives. We think of places like Ur of the Chaldees in the First half Crescent, or as you mentioned, Babylon, for example. And later in Greek history, or, or antique history more generally, we think of it in terms of the cities of Knossos, Mycenae, Athens, Sparta, Thebes. These are great organic centres that they're are almost, grown up. They're almost measurements of our civilisation. Exactly. They, they are barometers of um, civilised existence. But what's so striking about these is that, that, that they are generally organic entities, what you see with um, Akhenaten is, for the first time, a conscious, a consciously built city from scratch.
0: So, and what period
2: are we talking about? here,
1: Alex?
2: Akhenaten is, uh, Akhenaten's reign is, is conventionally dated to um, between about thirteen fifty three and thirteen fifty one BC, uh, and extending for seventeen years approximately after that. Um, he's the son of Amenhotep the Third. He's he comes to the throne in a period of tremendous growth in Egyptian history. But what's really striking about him is that even though he inherits a kingdom which is reaching the peak of its wealth and prosperity, he's an iconoclast. For reasons that we don't quite understand, because of the paucity of the uh, archaeological and documentary record, mm-hmm. he makes a striking break with all of, Egyptians, all of Egypt's political and particularly religious past. He's a monotheist. There is a good case for him to be uh, called the first monotheist. Certainly, he abandons the polytheism of the past in favour of a monotheistic worship of the sun god, a fact that goes hand in hand with what appears to have been a broader programme of political reforms. Now, because this was such a totemic change, Akhenaten appears to have decided to consolidate it by moving his whole court away from potential sources of opposition and discontent, the old capital of Memphis, for example, and out somewhere totally new. This is like Brasilia or Canberra today. But more dramatic than that, if you think about how fertile the Nile Valley was and still is, and if you think about abandoning that for the desert at a time when you don't have a great deal of technology where everything is hand-carted, And you've got to sustain a huge population. This is a a remarkable conceit before you even begin. So he takes everybody out to the desert and builds a new capital um, almost 200 miles further south, um, which is um, called um, uh, Armana, um, or as as it was actually called then, um, Akhitahtan. It was a tremendously lavish and dramatic city. You know, it was it was a complete court built from scratch, designed to focus attention on the worship of the sun, at the, and at the heart, the cult of which was, of course, the pharaoh himself. Yeah. It was really the first, truly dramatic attempt to reshape society by rebuilding a city. And none of it remains. Well, that's the most amazing thing, because it was so clearly linked to Akhenaten's program, um, and because his program of reform was uh, greeted with such opposition. When he died. The whole thing collapsed almost immediately. His son, perhaps the best known pharaoh in Egyptian history, Tutankhamun, in, um, is forced to move the court straight back to its old location, and Armana is left to the sands. It disappears entirely.
0: Now, one city, which is your next stepping stone on this great path of civilization, is one that certainly does still exist, but it's also one that Exists very much in our imaginations too, in our very ideas of what it is to be an urban
2: centre, and that's first century Rome. Well, quite, yes, Rome is the eternal city. Um, now, this is a story not so much of a city being created out of nothing. Rome had traditionally had existed for more than eight centuries, well, almost eight centuries before uh, we get to, to, to the issue we're about to talk about. Um, but this is a story of transformation, an attempt to transform a, a whole empire Um, and manifest that change in urban reform. And this concerns the Emperor Augustus. As Suetonius recalls, uh, and several other uh, historians um, uh, also report, he is thought to have, he is said to have found a city made of um, uh, wood, uh, built of brick, sorry, uh, and left it a city of marble. And that is a broadly accurate interpretation of his uh, programme of building during the Principate. He embarked on this huge um, Program of building which was designed to transform the face of Rome. And it had a theoretical background to this as well. Indeed. It? Now, there are two dimensions to this. The first one is to, to locate this, as with Echinaton, in the kind of political and economic um, uh, context, and the other one is a more intellectual context. Yeah. Politically and economically, Augustus was really, you know, he'd come out of the, the second um, uh, triumvirate, a, a, another period of brutal civil war, the collapse of the old Roman Republic, and he's ...trying to establish a new form of rule... ...that is ultimately based on tribunician power... ...the power which is supposed to be grounded in the people... ...which is often forgotten. So a broader programme of beautification... um, ...of improving public amenities... ...goes hand in hand with the idea of... ...gaining popular support for his consolidation... ...of tribunician power in his own hands. Intellectually however... ...it's very closely related to a much bigger... ...kind of cultural shift in attitudes towards architecture. And for this, we have to look to Vitruvius' De yeah. Architectura. Yeah, that's about
0: 27 BC. Something
2: exactly like so. Um, now, as Vitruvius explained, um, every building, of course, th- 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 that was built had to be pretty robust, solid, and well-proportioned. But because it was... Um, he believed it, that architecture should also, in some respects, imitate nature—an idea which kind of evokes the uh, the kind of a green spirit of architectural design today. Mm-hmm. He also believed that beauty consisted of the perfect imitation of the proportions of nature, yeah. and the most beautiful of these proportions lay in the most beautiful of. Creation, which was mankind. Yeah. So when you think about something, uh, an image from the Renaissance that was very popular, that of the, v- the Vitruvian man, which That's illustrates the proportion, the climatic, image. Exactly of so. This evokes um, Vitruvius' ideas of perfect proportions as a model for architecture.
0: So every building is, in that sense, designed to mimic the characteristics of the human body or something or been, so. to be at one with them. Precisely and, so. And this ideal... Of city planning enjoys a new lease of life uh, during the Renaissance uh, when we have your third example mm-hmm. of one of these great ideals of, of city planning
2: which is Prague Absolutely right. When we think about the Renaissance, we obviously think about the revival, the rebirth. Mm-hmm. The and we think of cities like Florence and Siena. Exactly yeah, so. As well. Now, this is not to say that there wasn't a great enthusiasm for antique ideas of city planning and architectural design in Italy. Indeed, several te- we have several texts by Florentines like Cucci Saltati or Leonardo Bruni that praise um, the creation of beautiful cities. But unfortunately, they, they were talking about ideals rather than realities and however pretty their cities may be today. They were pretty grotty places yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really in Prague, as you mentioned, that the, I, the, the, the classical idea of a fully designed city in pursuit of an ideal comes back to life again suddenly.
0: And it comes very early as well, mid-14th century, we're talking here with Charles IV, Holy Roman Emperor.
2: Absolutely right. Charles IV has inherited a very particular series of circumstances. He's really the first solid, stable emperor since um, uh, Frederick II, who died in 1250. Um, He's inherited an empire, or he's been given an empire, that's just come out of a period of tremendous upheaval and uncertainty, that's very decentralized, very amorphous, lacking shape. He's the heir to a very uh, new dynasty, the Luxembourg dynasty, which has lands all over Europe. And most importantly, he's in... Having had experience his campaigning in Italy, he's also had direct contact with the ideas of the first humanists, like Petrarch, Colodrienza, for example, yep. and these ideas that we've talk, started to talk about of um, city design as Poggio
0: Bracciolini there
2: with that wasn't with the, uh, with the rediscovery of, of the that wasn't rediscovered until until the fifteenth century, so it's okay. a little a little bit ahead of ourselves. But what? Charles is really interested in is giving his empire a new centre and reviving the idea of a strong Roman empire on the classical model. So he picks Prague, the capital of his own kingdom of Bohemia. Now, under his patronage um, and... With the benefit of the the uh, uh, designs of imported architects like Peter Parler, the city's totally transformed mm. along Roman lines. And you can still see it today. The most famous monuments are all his. Yep. The Charles Bridge, mm, the, the St. Victor's Cathedral, the castle, for mm, example, right. the Powder Tower, and, of course, the formation of the university. Yep. This is, a, as he himself puts it, an attempt to create a new Rome. It's an attempt to make vivid, make manifest the idea of a new empire, along classical lines, in his hands, rejecting the terrible traumas of the previous century.
0: Now, the next city that we move to, the fourth city in our list of six, is one that you could argue its creator, its inspiration, has more in common with Akhenaten than he does with the Renaissance tradition. And of course, we're talking about Peter Peter the Great and the creation of St Petersburg.
2: Absolutely. Well, to boil it down to, 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 to the simplest level, I think Peter the Great is, is, is actually probably the, the most inspirational and interesting um, uh, city planner, if you like, of all. He's so barking, he's brilliant. Um, and again, it's an ideal that drives him. Of course, in the familiar narrative... Um, Peter appears as part of a, a you know a group of modernizers who've been growing in strength since the Romanovs assumption of power in, in sixteen thirteen, yeah. um, who felt that Russia, having looked east for so long, needed to look west, um, and this was is often thought to have been con- an idea that was consolidated during his great embassy to Western Europe in sixteen ninety seven to eight. But there's also a lot else going on in Peter's mind. Um, his capital is at Moscow, and there are a lot of things that that. started to trouble him and started to make him think that even though he can make a few changes in Moscow, he needs something new. There's the military dimension. Russia's a second-rate power. It's been given a good kicking by Sweden in recent years. It needs a new military base, and it needs a new naval base. Mm -hmm. It needs something to give it a big economic boost. I mean, it's producing most of the material for the British Navy, but it's not actually using them for its own advantage. It's only got two ports, um, Adzov and um, Archangel up in the north. It needs a new outlet on the Baltic. Um, And, of course, there's also the problem of domestic politics. Moscow's too hot to handle. As soon as he came back from his great embassy, there's a rebellion of the guards in Moscow. So, a bit like Akhenaten, he knows that reform is going to have to involve relocation. So, like Akhenaten, he looks somewhere new. But even more dramatically than Akhenaten, he doesn't look to somewhere like the desert. He looks to a marshy wasteland where there's absolutely nothing. And there is... Nothing there. Even mosquitoes think it's a pretty rotten place to live um, on the shores of Lake Ladiga. Um Peter, however, isn't put off. He decides that he's going to use what is now the site of, of St. Petersburg as his, uh, as his new capital. He starts work in 1703 um, and he, he's really, um, he puts everything into it. Within a few years, more than 5% of the whole state budget is devoted to building this new city. He puts limitations on who can use stone across the mm-hmm. whole of Russia. So, you know, everything being poured into St. Petersburg. Yep, yep. Foreign architects are brought in. Armies, literal armies of people are drafted into service. And to it comes at colossal
0: human cost as
2: well. Immense. Absolutely mm-hmm. immense. Um, but, in, and in a sense, I, I think it's entirely justified. I'm telling that I think it was Dostoevsky who later described it as the most um, abstract and intentional city on earth. The only downside of that is that you know this this is um, so intentional that it had to be built with blood, yeah. and it, it, it is arguable that that was a, a stain that's that lived with the city ever since, really.
0: And even now, the city seems overwhelming, it, it's, it's almost as though one is in an oversized city, an oversized creation. Um, indeed, so yes. We're going now for our fifth example to a city which is wholly organic one might say London which just we talk about Rome as the eternal city it almost seems as though London's taken on that mantle these days still maintains its role as a global city and we're talking about the creation of a new part of that city London um, which takes place under Prince Albert we're talking about Albert Otoblitz
2: exactly so this, this, this in a sense is a story not so much of the, the recreation of a city as a whole but rather of a portion of it that is in, 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 a, in, a, in a way proportionate to Albert's role within um, British society during his all too brief lifetime um, but again you can see this idea of an ideal which Albert has to, to, to a certain extent um, transplanted from Germany uh, to a certain degree he's a man who's having been deeply involved with the, the great exhibition is captivated by the idea that britain is not only forming or consolidating an empire that's reaching out to the furthest extremes of the globe but is also building a, 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 an empire of knowledge at home yeah. it's becoming the the epicentre of learning and um, and discovery itself mm. but being a socially responsible type he's also concerned that this learning that is being pursued in, in, in Britain to a great extent than any, anywhere and ever before, um, should be made available to people. So on the back of the um, profits, of the uh, using the property of the Great Exhibition, um, he encourages um, the, the, the custodians of the resources to, to purchase this vast tract of land in South Kensington so that a, a complex of buildings can, can be constructed that will make this learning um, Available for everybody. And they're all, of course, still there. Exactly. They're all still there and they're all still being used. Yeah, hugely, um, hugely popular. It's more think, popular now than ever, I would presume. Well, in a sense, this is this is the story of the most successful idea of urban planning. Um, thanks to um, his Albert's um, patronage and close collaboration with people like Gottfried Semper, mm-hmm. um, there was set in motion this tremendous programme of uh, of construction which, which really deliberately opened up specific segments of knowledge that were dedicated and had a defined function and so we're talking of the natural history museum the victorian albert
0: museum the royal horticultural society gardens the royal albert hall exactly so
2: Um, it's it it, what's really interesting about this in in a certain sense is that unlike any other type of city planning before it's not designed for inhabitation it's not designed to, to house people, yes, it's the dispersal of knowledge. Precisely, yes. so it's the dissemination. It's a gigantic temple of learning, if you like, and that is perhaps the most ideal and abstract type of city planning we've ever seen. But it's also so vast as well. I mean, when you compare it to, to, to anything that might be comparable um, in the world, like um, I mean, you might think of like the temple building in the Roman Forum, for example. It's on a huge scale. But it's still tiny mm. compared to to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's never been anything quite like it.
0: And so we move from Europe's great unplanned city, London, to its great planned city, um, its great manicured city, Paris, <laughs> um, the city of the world's desire. Um, but it wasn't always as attractive as it seen today.
2: Well, that's absolutely right, and I, th- I think it's actually a very good time to be talking about how Paris used to be at the moment, because, of course, you've got the wonderful exhibition of, of uh works at the Royal Academy at the moment, which shows Paris um, as it was just before its transformation into the city that we know and love, or in some cases hate, um, today, depending on your perspective. Um, if you just wander around that exhibition, which uh, consists of a large number of works that were commissioned specifically to capture the old city, you see it as a, as a really... Ghastly place, and it evokes the spirit of some of, um, um, you know, you can really feel some of Zola's early works Hunter in it. Notre Dame, Ex- I mean, you've, you've, you for, you've got the, the, the Victor Hugo, and it's gotcha. alleyways and things like that, and misshapen creatures lurching about between overhanging Gothic buildings. You've got the, you know, the ghastly, dirty streets, etc., that are filled with rubbish, with people boozing on either side, etc. Um, but but what's really interesting about these these illustrations of, 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 of Dummies is that they really do um, show um, the extent to which um, problems which had been inherited from the, the unplanned medieval city of Paris um, and which had never been dealt with. Everybody since you know, the 14th century had been saying, Paris is a mess, we've got to do something about this. Even Napoleon had said, this is shocking. I mean, we've really got to start pushing things forward. But um, nobody done anything. Uh, partly because you know France has had, had in that period such a traumatic international um series of international affairs, a, a traumatic domestic history, such problems with public finance, and of course, in other stages, um, such a such bother with with revolution, wars, civil war, et cetera, from the, the wars of religion through to the, through to the actual revolution itself. However, um, by the time you hit the reign of Napoleon III, um, who, um, after his election to the presidency, eventually becomes um, uh, emperor in, in 1852, um, everything starts to change. Again, partly because he sees uh, his role as um, being that of a restorer of an empire the um, in the reinvigorator of a, of a of a of a nation that he believes is truly great um, he entrusts um with the task of transforming paris and it is absolutely total it i mean really it, since um even even by comparison, in, in terms of scale, w- w- with something like Albertopolis, the, the, it, it, there is no equal. I mean, the, the, there is nothing like this. Um, huge amounts of uh, Paris were just bought up. Vast amounts of men deployed in it, and I can't remember the exact figures. But it was a massive proportion of the of the public, uh, of, of the state budget. So much so that there were, there were protests in other cities. Um, not not that other French cities are terribly bothered about protesting about such things uh, ordinarily. Um, Great tracts of the city were just completely demolished. Um, sanitation was improved. Um, boulevards were widened. Large squares were constructed. Aqueducts introduced. Um, communications were improved dramatically. We have to remember, of course, that this is the time of the the real growth of um, of the railways. And mm. um, this is the time, of course, when when you have a lot of novels also written about Paris and its stations and outlying stations, like of course the uh, the um, um, for example, you have the great stages like Gare de Nord, Lyon, for example, constructed at this point to make it a city that can reach out to the, to the provinces. Um, and, of course, there's the cultural side of things, which are also built into the whole plan. It's not just a, a rather boring programme of, you know, making the streets wider and nicer and cleaner. You've got the Opera Garnier, for example, again, trying to make culture a little bit uh, more accessible. So Paris is, you know, completely rebuilt. There's actually very little of Paris left from the, the earlier period, the pre-Houseman mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so that's why, in a sense, this Domey exhibition is so very interesting because yeah. you've nowhere and else to see
0: that, it. That, that's all you have. It's it wiped out in 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Alex. That's an absolutely fascinating survey of uh, the ideals of city planning over two or 3,000 years. It's our cover story in the November edition. So, Alex, thank you very much. Thank Thanks you.
2: very much indeed, Emily.